Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I'm your host. And this week we have a firecracker of a show to bring to you. Uh, It has been a whirlwind week in terms of political news. Uh, And we're going to cover uh, some of the high points of the week and, and get into a few other topics. But first, as always, we're going to bring you up to date on where we are in our battle against COVID-19. And uh, we stand at 98.3 million people uh, who have been reported with the disease. Uh, 1,077,000 people have died from the disease and 646 million people have been vaccinated. Uh, And all three of those numbers are up, although um, the death rate and related the hospitalization rates uh, have continued to flatten out a little bit. Uh, They're still going up, but not as rapidly as they have in the past. On the scene with the monkeypox, we're currently at 29,133 reported cases here in the U.S., and that's up roughly about... uh, four or five hundred cases over last week. Uh, So, you know, it's not growing at the rate of COVID, uh, even though COVID rates are are flattening out, but it still continues to advance. Therefore, we need to be concerned about it. So, you know, it's it's clear that, you know, we're not out of the woods in terms of what we need to do to keep ourselves safe, as we say each week on this program. You know, we need to mask up, we need to vax up, uh, we need to maintain social distancing where it's appropriate, and really just take care of ourselves uh, so that we can take care of those around us. Uh, in related news, uh, and we've talked about this on the program before, uh, where there was uh, evidence taken and uh, data gathered on the difference in the uh, death rates between Democrats and Republicans here in the U.S. So we have discussed this before uh, in talking about uh, the politicization of a national pandemic, uh, but you know, there's now some information that has come to light. Uh, an article came across my desk, and uh, it's from Vice News, uh, dated November 16th. And it talks about how COVID-19 is killing more Republicans than Democrats, according to a new study from the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, The article cites that the study, titled Excess Death Rates for Republicans and Democrats During the COVID-19 Pandemic, uh, used voter registration and death records to answer a question. Is there a link between political affiliation and the rates of COVID-related death in the United States. And according to the article, uh, what they found was that the short answer uh, is yes. What they looked at in 2018 and the early parts of 2020, excess death rates for Republicans and Democrats are similar and centered around zero, the study said. Both groups experienced a similar large spike in excess deaths in the winter of 2020. 20 and 2021. However, in the summer of 2021, and this was after vaccines were widely available, 
the Republican excess death rate rose to nearly double that of Democrats, and this gap widened further in the winter of 2021. Uh, you know, according to the article, the study attributes this to the vaccine uptake disparity between Republicans and Democrats, which we've talked about on this show previously. Uh, this has been widely documented as more Republicans refuse to take the vaccine. The most vocal anti-vax voices were Republican politicians and some conservative news outlets. Uh, quote, the gap in excess death rates between Republicans and Democrats is concentrated in counties with low vaccination rates and only materializes after vaccines became widely available. The article goes on to raise the question of a link between uh, vaccine uptake and the uh, election results that occurred, uh, I gather, in you know, 2020 and 2022, to see if it's possible to establish that the excess deaths from COVID-19 that are occurring in you know, deep red areas of the country actually had a noticeable impact on the outcome of the elections. And according to uh, the article, um, Jason L. Schwartz, an associate professor of health policy at the School of Public Health at Yale, and one of the authors of the story, a study rather, um, was quoted as saying, our study can't answer that, but it certainly seems plausible just how stark the differences in vaccination rates uh, have been among Democrats and Republicans. Uh, this is corroborated to some extent by Philip Bump at the Washington Post, who looked at the same data, and he posits that COVID deaths did not affect the midterms and suggest that asking the question is a grotesque eff effort to score political points. Schwartz from the School of Public Health at Yale uh, was quoted in the article as saying that he and his colleagues wanted to look at something that hadn't been carefully studied before. Quote, could we actually drill down at the level of individuals, in this case, individual death rates, and see whether or not politicization could be linked to mortality, he said. So far, and this is a quote, it looks like there really is a signal here, particularly linked to the availability of vaccines. And as you recall, you know, and, and we've talked about it here on this show, and, and it has actually uh, risen to the level of coverage among the mainstream media and social media, uh, areas of the country that are deeply red uh, had the highest rates of vaccine deniers and uh, vaccine refusers. And this study uh, looks at any po a possible linkage between, you know, this refusal to, to take the vaccines and an excess death rate that could have, keywords could have, had an impact on uh, the midterm and general elections uh, that we have just gone through. So, you know, it, it concludes by saying the, the pandemic also isn't over. The vaccines have stopped a lot of people from getting COVID, but vaccine rates in deep red parts of the U.S. are still low. 
if these differences in vaccine vaccination rather by political party affiliation persist then the higher excess death rate among republicans is likely to continue through the subsequent stages of the covid 19 pandemic in other words uh, the longer that more people deny and refuse to get the vaccines particularly those who are Republican, that there possibly could be a greater impact on election outcomes in the future. So just an interesting story, uh, something that that helps us close the circle uh, that we opened a while back. So we'll we'll keep track on this and let you know what we find out. All right. And moving on to the aforementioned uh, political roller coaster week we just concluded. Uh, let's recap some of the big stories that uh, came out of the political circles uh, this past week. Um, probably top of the list is the announcement on uh, last Tuesday by you know the former president uh, that he is going to be a candidate for re-election on the Republican ticket in 2024, which came as no real surprise to anyone, uh, but nonetheless uh, was still a big political event uh, this week. Uh, the re reviews of his announcement uh, is something that, that piques a little interest in that um, most of the uh, pundits and, you know, Republicans and Democrats uh, noted that his his uh, announcement for candidacy uh, was even for Donald Trump, but in general was uh, sort of low key and you know kind of anticlimactic, um, you know as opposed to what you normally would see when a political candidate is announcing their campaign either for election or for re-election. You know, there's, there's usually fanfare and, and noise and all kinds of, of things. Um, the former president gave his remarks in uh, the ballroom at his Mar-a-Lago uh, club and residence. And, you know, in, even to the point that it was reported that some of the attending guests uh, actually were trying to leave uh, in the middle of the speech uh, and were blocked by security uh, from leaving the room, which which I found kind of a, an interesting little uh, snicker moment there. Um, within a day or so of that announcement by the former president, uh, it was announced and, you know, it, an even bigger headline, if, if you can believe it, uh, was that the leadership in the Democratic House uh, is not going to seek reappointment to their leadership roles. So Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi uh, and her two, uh, her number two and number three leaders, Congressman Jim Clyburn and Congressman Steny Hoyer, uh, all three announced that they are not going to seek reappointment to their positions, which means that the leadership of the Democratic Party in its minority role in the House of Representatives uh, is going to be handed over to new and um, younger members of Congress. 
So we already know that the leading contender for the leadership of the party um, and, you know, potentially if the Democrats take over as Speaker of the House uh, is going to be Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. So the change in leadership in the party is, is going to reflect a younger perspective. And, you know, it, it was, again, a, a ground-shaking moment in political news this week. So we'll pay some attention to the, the new leadership as things firm up with the Democratic um, in the House. And, you know, this reflects and is somewhat in response to, I would imagine, the fact that in the midterms, uh, one of the largest voting blocks uh, that surfaced was, in fact, younger voters in the you know, 18 to you know, 40-year-old role. And uh, this looks like it is starting to signal a shift uh, in the Democratic Party to not only younger leaders, but also to younger representatives. News out of Florida uh, that came out this week uh, spoke of the election of 25-year-old Maxwell Frost uh, as you know, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. And he becomes the youngest member of Congress, uh, taking the title away from the former holder, which was Madison Cawthorn. Uh, so, you know, and, and also he is the first uh, Gen Z member of Congress, which leads to, at least in, in a, a slight way, uh, the arrival of the millennial age, uh, particularly Generation Z, uh, to the United States Congress. Uh, and hopefully we will see more and more of the younger uh, generations taking their place in the seats in the House chamber and potentially uh, in the Senate chamber. Although for senator, you have to be 35 years old. Whereas to be a member of the House, you only need to be uh, 25 years old or older. But either way, congratulations to uh, Maxwell Frost. Uh, welcome to Congress. And uh, we will keep track on you know, his impact, on uh, his influence, and what transpires as he takes on his new career as a congressman in the United States of America. So speaking of elections and the fact that uh, the dust from the 2022 midterms uh, is almost uh, fully settled, uh, we're going to talk a little bit in a moment about the outcomes. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that, if you recall, uh, I mentioned on the show that I was kind of looking forward to maybe a hiatus of political campaign and, and you know, political news uh, for a week, a couple of weeks, you know, maybe a month, just to take a breather from all of the campaign uh, news that we've had over the last uh, two plus years. Uh, that actually uh, seems not to be the case. Oh, well. So we look at uh, what transpired out of the midterm elections. And, you know, what we find is that the Senate, 
while we are still waiting for the outcome of the runoff election in Florida between uh, incumbent Senator Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker, uh, which we will find out about uh, on or sometime slightly after December 6th. Uh, and, you know, that remains the only race, you know, unsettled in the Senate. Currently, the Democrats have retained majority control uh, by achieving, you know, 50 seats uh, with the vice president, Kamala Harris, sitting as president of the Senate and available to break any ties. That effectively gives the Democrats control and maintains what has been transpiring uh, over the last two years uh, since the 2020 elections. On the uh, House side, there are still uh, about a half dozen, you know, five or six races that are still out there to be decided. However, the Republicans have achieved the 218 seats necessary to hold a majority in the House. Uh, they have already um, begun their process of electing uh, who is going to be Speaker of the House once they take the gavel on January 3rd. Uh, that is most likely to be, but not guaranteed, uh, that it's going to be Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, we've, we've spoken before about the impacts that he would bring to the, to the House and to the country at large as the Republicans have made no bones about the uh, agenda they want to move forward. Uh, you know, as I said, we've talked about this quite a bit over the, the last uh, year or so as we approach the midterms. Um, in some other areas, uh, one of the things I found most notable is that when you look at how divided our country is, uh, not only do you see it when you look at you know, institutions like the Senate and the fact that, um, and, and it should be made mention, let me, let me back up a, a half step here. In the House of Representatives, uh, normally the party that is out of power, you know, that is the minority party, uh, typically gains on average about 26 seats in the House of Representatives, along with about four or five seats uh, in the Senate. Uh, in the 2022 midterm, uh, the House is almost evenly divided. It looks like, depending upon where the, the results from the remaining, you know, six races or so that are out there fall down, is that the Republicans are probably going to end up with something like uh, 223 seats uh, with the balance going to the Democrats. So they're not going to have a wide majority. Uh, it is going to be a very close House, uh, which is going to make legislating challenging. And I think I'm being generous there. Uh, but it also means that whoever the speaker is, they are going to have to become very adept very quickly at dealing with a razor thin majority in the House of Representatives uh, in terms of getting you know whatever their agenda uh, is shaping up to be. Uh, and, you know, truth be told, Kevin McCarthy is no Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi is a master at keeping her caucus together, uh, which 
proved itself in the passage of some of the landmark legislation the Democrats got through in the last session. So, you know, it, it remains to be seen, you know, just how effective the Republican majority is going to be uh, when you only have, you know, five seats uh, in, in your margin. Uh, you definitely need to have, you know, 218 locked in votes uh, on, on your major legislative pieces uh, at a minimum in order to get things done. Uh, if and, and there are you know, moderate Republicans out there, there are ones in the House who are not um, affiliated or tied with the uh, conservative extreme right of the Republican Party, a.k.a. the MAGA Republicans. And, you know, that could prove to be very interesting uh, in terms of how the Republican agenda shapes up. So, you know, we, we political junkies are going to be attuned very closely to what happens in the House over the next two years just to see how this will play out. And, you know, this, this division in our country extends even further. If you look at the outcomes of the governor's races in the country, uh, in the in the midterms, the Democrats picked up three uh, governorships and the Republicans picked up one, which gives the Democrats 24 governor's houses uh, that they control in the U.S. and Republicans control 25. So another example of just how finely divided our country is. And then I, I dove down even deeper and looked at the attorney general's races uh, in the country. Uh, and in, in the midterm, the Democrats lost one attorney general uh, seat uh, in the country and Republicans gained one. Uh, so basically a net no change to where we were in terms of the pre-election count of attorneys general. Democrats have 23, Republicans have 27. So you know, it is clear that the divisions in our country uh, remain and continue to run deeply uh, and be, and we are starkly divided as a country. Uh, this, you know, obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in upcoming shows because I really want to dive into uh, looking at you know, what alternatives there are, such things as, you know, third parties, uh, coalitions, and so forth, in terms of shaping how uh, our, our national level government functions and, you know, what we as the voters can do about it. So it, it, it was an interesting week. Uh, it continues to be a uh, political season. Uh, there's no rest for the weary. And, you know, we will keep you posted as to what happens uh, in the political scene, you know, in Washington uh, as we go forward here on Fired Up. Um, last point in, in this half of the, the show is another groundbreaking or earth-shaking piece of news was that Merrick Garland, the attorney general, has appointed a special counsel for investigating uh, the former president and events at Mar-a-Lago in terms of the documents that were um, Ill illegally or incorrectly or wrongly 
removed by the former president uh, to his residence down in Florida. And he's also going to be looking at the the role that the former president uh, played in the January 6th insurrection above and beyond what the January 6th committee is doing. This they're looking at specific uh, criminality of the former president in what transpired in the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, this individual, his name is Jack Smith, and he has a very, very impressive uh, CV and, and experience. His bona fides uh, read very, very impressively. And, you know, we will look forward to tracking uh, what his impact is going to be. One of the things that has come out from reports on um, Mr. Smith is that, number one, uh, he's extremely organized. Uh, he is ready to hit the ground running. So the expectation is that there will be outcomes that we see from this special counsel uh, in, in fairly short order. He is, he's not going to have to reinvent the wheel He's going to build on top of uh, investigations that have already gone forward, and you know we will see how this plays out. But it is a very interesting uh, outcome, uh, and has received many mixed reviews from you know Democrats and Republicans. But the one thing that uh, they all uh, seem to be in somewhat agreement on is that he is extremely qualified to do what he is being charged to do. Uh, and given that the uh, former president is announced as a candidate in 2024 and the current president has announced his intention to seek re-election, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed Jack Smith uh, in order to uh, insulate and isolate the investigation into Mar-a-Lago and uh, the uh, insurrection on January 6th related specifically to Donald Trump uh, from the the broader politically uh, influenceable uh, Department of Justice and you know make it truly an independent investigation uh, that will report its results to Merrick Garland as Attorney General once it's concluded now it is expected that you know this is going to take a while. This is not something that is is likely to be resolved, uh, you know, within the next few months. It is probably going to take, uh, you know, more than a year, uh, in order to to get to a conclusion. So we will keep track. We'll dial in for the long haul on this one, and we'll let you know what transpires. So, as I said, this was a, a firestorm, uh, earth-shaking political week. Uh, these are just the top stories. Um, there's been you know, a lot of talk about who won and who lost in the midterms, uh, some surprising results, uh, some results that have been uh, going you know, through the motions of counting uh, solidly for a week, and we're finally getting, you know, final results. Uh, one of the things I would point out and note is, at least at this stage, and it's probably still early, but we are not seeing 
you know, a flurry of challenges to outcomes uh, from, you know, people who lost elections uh, coming out of the midterms. Uh, the other point that's a, a good takeaway, and I mention again, is that um, people, young people under, under the age of 40, <clears throat> played a very large role and, and voted in record numbers uh, in the midterms. Same thing can be said for women. And, you know, obviously the political news and the, the, the legal news that has occurred since the summer, um, you know, brought that to fruition. So as we look forward into the next Congress, um, as we, you know, wind down through the last um, six weeks of 2022 and move into 2023. Uh, it's clearly going to be an interesting and um, fired up, to, to select a word, uh, political season here in America. So we're strapped in. We will keep you posted. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll call it as we see it. All right, let's take our first break here. And we will come back to you with uh, more uh, informed stories and more news after this break. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be right back. Right now, our country feels divided, but there's a place where people are coming together. I got to tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation, and it feels good. Wow, your story is so... Uh, Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> when people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope, too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. And we're back. Thank you for listening to that message. All right, let's get back into our talk about the political machine as we saw at work in the midterms in 2022. Um, by way of introduction, uh, in 1961, or roughly 60-plus years ago, President John F. Kennedy said in his inaugural address, among other things, that the torch had been passed to a new generation. Well, 61 years later, uh, in the 2022 midterms, we see what uh, could only be called sort of a validation of that statement uh, from John Kennedy Oh, those many years ago. And that was the performance of young voters in the 2022 midterms, uh, particularly uh, those in the uh, 18 to 49 uh, year old age group. So there's an article that came out of Yahoo News on the 16th, uh, and it's entitled Young voters canceled out midterm voters over 65, blocking GOP gains. 
And uh, the article speaks about the impact that was generated by the uh, 18 to 29 year olds and the 30 to 44 year olds uh, in the 2022 midterms. Uh, so in the article, it talks about uh, and it, it cites the daughter of uh, Pennsylvania Governor-elect Shapiro, who was talking about uh, the results of the election and you know, her comment or the comment that was made was that, quote, Gen Z showed up. Well, and uh, they were correct. According to the article, exit polling showed that voters 18 to 29 years old who made up 12% of the voters in the gubernatorial race voted for him instead of uh, opponent Doug Mastriano by more than 44 points. And while, and while younger voters didn't make up a significantly larger share of the electorate in the 2022 midterms in Pennsylvania or elsewhere, they did skew more Democratic than past cycles, helping to defy historic patterns and widespread predictions that the GOP would sweep back to power. So, you know, it, it notes that the fact that these young voters were coming in so strong in an off year uh, is, is noted as very concerning. And this is according to Fox News conservative personality Jesse Waters, who uh, said in on air comments after the election. Uh, and, you know, they, they cite exit polling from ABC News that shows that younger voters shift toward Democrats was just one of multiple notable turnout changes uh, as well. Independents also narrowly favored Democrats over Republicans. And while this is not a new trend, what we see in the results of the 2022 midterms is probably what could be called the start of the uh, rise to prominence of the younger generations of voters, uh, those, you know, Gen Z and, and beyond uh, in that 18 to 44 age group. And as a card-carrying member of the baby boomer generation, uh, born in the last decade of that baby boom period, it is uh, heartening to see a resurgence in the energy, drive, and determination of the young voters coming into the, the political election system. Uh, so let, let's take a look at a breakdown of you know, what the youth voters uh, who appear to be shifting leftward uh, showed us. According to exit polling, and again, this is from the article, uh, 18 to 29-year-olds accounted for 12% of voters in the midterms. And they cite this the lowest share of the electorate compared to all other age groups. But they skewed firmly for Democratic candidates, uh, a trend that has only grown more pronounced in recent years. Nationally, this age category voted in the 2022 election for Democratic House candidates by 28 points over Republican challengers. That's about the same as in 2020, but considerably better than in stronger Republican years like 2014. 30 to 44-year-olds uh, 
were the only other age group who favored Democrats in the House this election uh, by four points over the Republicans, according to exit polling. This is a decrease, however, from the 2018 House races when this group favored Democrats by 19 points and in 2016 by 7 points. 45 to 64-year-olds preferred Republicans in the House by 10 points, and those 65 and up who made up 28% of the electorate voted for GOP candidates 12 points over Democrats. Uh, pointing at these numbers, Harvard Opinion, uh, Harvard Public Opinion Project student chair Alan Zhang told ABC News, quote, young voters cancel out every single vote of those over 65. Under 30 and under 40 were the only age group to go to the Democrats, and they went overwhelmingly to the Democrats. Without the youth vote, uh, he says, there was no firewall that stopped the red wave from taking over. So you can see, and, and it's obvious, that uh, there is a new future happening in election politics uh, in the United States, uh, both Democratic and Republican. One of the things that uh, both parties need to do as they analyze the results of the midterms is keep in mind a couple of points. Number one, that the youth vote is one that uh, you can't just pitch to them. They are among the most educated, uh, informed, and aware groups uh, in the electorate today. Uh, you have to talk to them, uh, talk with them, and not just at them. You can't just pitch some glossy uh, TV ads or you know a meme-driven political message on social media and expect them to roll in the door you know two or three million deep to your cause you're going to have to work and convince them as to why they need to uh, give you their vote uh, and that's a good thing you know as an electorate we need to be engaged informed and educated we need to be in your face with our candidates asking them to prove why they should uh, earn our vote. And, you know, that's what we saw happen uh, more and more. And, you know, it, it's, as I said, it's not just Democrats. You know, conservatives uh, taking note uh, of the youth vote in this election uh, are also speaking up. And if the comments of a uh, 25-year-old Republican candidate from New Hampshire, Caroline Levitt, uh, she tweeted after her 25,000-vote loss to incumbent Representative Chris Pappas that the GOP failed miserably during the midterm elections, uh, the first major test on Gen Z's electoral impact. Uh, you know, Gen Z is growing daily, according to Levitt, and moving further left. This will continue to be a colossal challenge for our party if we don't change young hearts and minds. So, you know, it, it could be that, you know, conservatives and the right wing uh, may write this generation off as, you know, not knowing, not caring, uh, and, and not willing 
to get into the game, uh, if they do that, they do that at their peril because uh, it will cost them elections uh, as it did last week. It will cost them future elections as well. And according to Jack Lobel of the group Voters of Tomorrow, which is a Gen Z-led organization focused on engaging and mobilizing young voters, um, according to Lobel, recent, uh, said that in weeks leading up to Election Day, Voters of Tomorrow contacted young people nationwide and focused on California, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Uh, they contacted people over 6 million times by phone, by text, or in person. They had a social media reach of more than 100 million in that same period, including with a digital advertising operation which targeted young voters in key races with information on LGBTQ rights and abortion access. It was also cited that the uh, Dobbs decision uh, where Roe v. Wade was overturned, as well as the economy, uh, inflation, uh, you know, as I said, abortion, uh, also played key roles in motivating and energizing the youth vote uh, in the midterms. Uh, like others, according to uh, one source, youth voters care about economy and abortion and inflation uh, and cited research with 18 to 29 year olds this fall that those two items were often cited with abortion mentioned as particularly important by young women. So we see that the uh, Gen Z block of voters uh, is extremely informed and engaged and energized uh, with supporting candidates who align with their core beliefs, which is something, as we say on this show all the time, is that you've got to communicate and make sure that you're getting your message out to the right people and you're getting them the right message. So, you know, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, uh, you definitely need to uh, do a postmortem on your outreach campaigns and look at how you approached the, you know, under 49-year-old segment of the population uh, because it, it's fair to say that while not absolutely critical to the outcome of the 2022 midterms, it's clear that the youth vote played a pivotal role in where we are in terms of our uh, elected government today. And something interesting to note is that um, you know, the the results of the midterms you know aren't aren't the only recent evidence uh, that uh, the voters are uh, fed up or getting fed up with the partisan nature of our election system. Uh, a nationwide survey commissioned uh, released last month found that voters across the ideological spectrum strongly value impartial election administration. It also found high levels of support for stronger rules aimed at ensuring election officials remain free from close party ties. So, you know, it, it's clear that uh, in many areas of the country, and these are and not just, you know, liberal or progressive uh, enclaves around uh, the U.S., 
but in you know some conservative uh, areas as well, uh, the recognition is increasing that these types of partisan uh, games, to, for lack of a better word, um, are damaging our democracy. So a couple of suggestions uh, that came out of this article, um, and you know both of which uh, talk about uh, and are are written into some model model ethics legislation. Several groups uh, around the country have talked about model ethics legislation uh, that would do such things as uh, bar chief, ele chief election officials from taking explicit partisan steps that undermine voter trust, uh, such as endorsing or raising money for other candidates. Uh, some of the bills would make it illegal for election officials to use their, quote, official authority to influence or interfere or attempt to interfere with the outcome of any election, ensuring that election officials represent the interests of voters, not parties. Uh, another one that has come out and, and surfaced uh, would set qualifications for candidates for chief election officer, including experience running elections, uh, a requirement that you know, probably would have stopped nearly all of the election denier secretary of state candidates this year from running. Uh, you know, we've we've talked about you know, qualified candidates in in light of uh, what we have seen with you know certain elected officials who are already serving in Congress and a couple who are in the current cycle of, of being elected, and uh, that to me is what sounds like an excellent idea and why didn't somebody think of it before so the the net result would be that these uh, measures would shift the demographics of the candidate pool for these posts uh, away from partisan politicians and toward election professionals uh, some of these bills are already gaining sponsors from both parties for introduction in the state legislatures uh, coming up next year and the third point mentioned in the article is that uh, states should also change how they choose their chief election official. Uh, one option that's presented is nonpartisan elections, which could be combined with the kind of ethics requirements that the um, article outlined above. And uh, this would ensure the candidates are truly nonpartisan in more than just name. Uh, an even more effective solution uh, would be for states to select chief election officials using commissions of experts along the lines of the merit selection panels that many states uh, currently use to pick their judges. So, you know, a couple of interesting suggestions, but definitely uh, it indicates that there is an increased uh, voter uh, awareness of the need for some core level fixes for our election system. And, you know, we will keep track of the progress on this, uh, but we are, are hopeful that it will, in fact, make progress and move forward uh, in states across the country. And hopefully this will lead to some long-term change in how we bring people into our uh, political system. So we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep track and we'll let you know what we find out. So while we travel to the, along the road to this promised land of 
nonpartisan and uh, reflective election politics. Uh, where are we right now? Uh, we still got a ways to go. Uh, the last story I want to want to bring to you is uh, from an article in uh, Raw Story, and this cites uh, statements from uh, probable incoming Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, as uh, he says that he's going to keep the promise to uh, to boot uh, Eric Swalwell, Adam Schiff, and Ilhan Omar from their committee assignments uh, in January when Republicans take over the House. Uh, the article uh, reads, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, said this past Sunday that he would keep his vow to prevent top Democrats from serving on committees if elected Speaker of the House. Uh, he gave these comments uh, while speaking to Maria Bartiromo on Fox News uh, and he promised that Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, Eric Swalwell, Democrat of California, and Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, will be removed from their respective committees uh, upon his elevation to Speaker of the House. Uh, quote, I'll keep that promise, he said on Fox News. I will not allow Swalwell to be on Intel. Uh, you have Adam Schiff who lied to the American public time and time again, uh, hello, uh, McCarthy receipts, uh, we will not allow him to be on the Intel Committee either. Uh, he concluded by suggesting that Ilhan, Representative Ilhan Omar was too anti-Semitic to serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, he insisted that booting the Democrats from committees was standing up for America's, quote, freedoms. Uh, the strip to move Democrats uh, of their committee assignments was primarily seen as retribution after Democrats removed Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committees last year. So uh, here we have, you know, they're not even in office yet. They haven't even been seated as the 118th Congress, and already we're getting the tit-for-tat uh typical political uh, theater that, you know, we've, we've grown disgustingly used to seeing over the last, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 years. Um, this has got to change, you know. Uh, so for us as the voters, we need to recognize and communicate in the strongest terms that, you know, this kind of childish behavior, this, as I say, tit for tat, you you sidelined my representative. I'm going to sideline yours. Uh, this is not how we get things done. This is not how we move our country forward. This is not how these elected officials represent the people who put them in their positions in the first place. Uh, you know, it, it is clear, and we've talked about this uh, numerous times, that we have to let these elected officials know and then back it up by, you know, doing what happened uh, in the midterms with those uh, candidates who were, you know, election deniers uh, or, you know, uh, you know, QAnon sympathizers, so on and so forth, that, you know, these positions are not something that the American public, the American voters the electorate 
want to see in their elected officials. And this goes for the down ballot, too. Uh, if you look out over the landscape, there are hundreds of election deniers who hold uh, statewide offices uh, and, you know, as such, have an, an outsized influence over the nature and tenure of our politics. Uh, we have got to uh, make a commitment. We've got to draw that line to say, okay, this goes no further. All right, we're going to start you know, rolling these back. They're not getting done what we sent them there to do, and therefore we are going to start culling the herd. Um, you know, I, I really get just so tired of the same old, you know, Wah, wah, wah. You took you took my marbles, um, and you know I'm going to punish you. Attitude by our elected officials um, at all levels, at the local level, the state level. Uh, you can go through your your local newspaper, your local television stations, you know, and and see you know all of the same type of game playing out. Uh, this this is something that the American people need to take up with their elected officials on an ongoing basis, routinely and regularly communicating with them, uh, responding to comments they make in the media uh, if they, they disagree with it, and you know, let them know this is not what we want you to do. And if you're not going to do what, what the people who put you in your job uh, tell you that we want you to do, then we're going to take that job away from you. So, you know, we, we have our work cut out for us. Uh, it, it is, it is going to be uh, a challenge. It is something that's not going to be fixed uh, in the next two years uh, with the general election coming up, although we can make a start with that by making it clear that the American people are not afraid to vote anyone out of office, no matter how long you've held a position, uh, no matter what your committee assignment is, no matter what your role in the party is. If you are not going to do the people's business, then you are not going to have the people's jobs. So, you know, let's be clear. Let's, you know, do as we've always done, and that is be informed, be educated, and be energized. And let's make sure that we get out there and do the work that we need to do as voters so that the people we send to elected office, whether they are, you know, down the street from where you live or in Washington, D.C., make sure that they are doing what you want them to do, what the American people want them to do. Well, that's going to do it for this edition. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please continue to stay safe for yourself, your loved ones, your community and your country. And take care, and I look forward to having conversation with you again in seven days. Mm -hmm.